Uh, chapter 18, verse 8. Then the men arose and went, and Joshua commanded those who went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it, and return to me. Then I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed through the land, and described it by cities in seven divisions in a book. And they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the sons of Israel according to their divisions. So the 21 men did exactly as God had commanded them to do through Joshua. And what we we're told is they put it in a book. Now remember, whenever the scripture uses the word book, we don't think of book like this being a book. We think of a scroll. Because the book has a, a, a leaf thing between covers like we're accustomed to wasn't invented until after the time of Christ, somewhere in the second century by, by the Romans. And so uh, you do not have that. You have a scroll, as we more commonly think of. And so in a scroll, they recorded all of this information. Of course, they didn't have surveyor's equipment. So, you know, it was from this hill to this rock and this creek and this town and, and this kind of a description that we find or would have found in, in that scroll. Well, I wonder what happened to that scroll. Joshua went before the Lord then, I believe. I, I, he probably took the scroll with him as, as he went before the Lord seeking God's will in casting lots for the final division of the land. How were the lots cast? What were the lots that were cast? We're not told. It's very possible that it was the Urim and the Thummim because they were used as kind of a lot situation from time to time. And this would have been a very uh, significant time for them to have been used. And there's no reason that it might not have been the Urim and Thummim that were used here. But the Jews have a tradition. And according to their tradition, the name of a tribe was put on seven little pieces of wood, some little kind of a ticket-like thing, and put in one urn. And then the seven distributions, or the seven pieces of land, the something to identify each, was put in another urn. So you reach in, you pull out, well, this is the tribe of, you know, pull out, and this is the piece of, match them together, and, and that's the way it was. That is uh, the Jewish tradition, at least, as to what happened. Whatever was the case, I think we can believe that God superintended the division of the land. There is a passage in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 33, which reads, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I do not think you can take that to, to mean that every time you throw the dice to try to figure out something, God guides the fall of the dice. No, he doesn't. But I think when it comes to walking in obedience to him, it's sort of like Gideon's fleece putting the fleece out, you know, the ground's dry, the fleece is wet, and vice versa the next night. You know, again, I don't think that was established as a pattern. That God wasn't saying, well, you ever want to know something, just stick a fleece out overnight. No, I don't think so. I think in Gideon's case, that was what God used. In this case, God guided the uh, choice through the casting of lots. That doesn't mean that we should cast lots <laughs> to try to figure out what to do. Well, will it be this girl, this girl, or this girl? Well, I'll throw the dice and find out. No, I don't think so. That's not how uh, God works uh, in our lives. 
I think the land portions were made as equal as possible. Maybe, certainly they weren't all equal in area, but those that were larger, maybe it could be seen that there were fewer villages or fewer towns or less fertile land, whatever the case may be. I don't know that anybody's ever run a computer analysis of these uh, different tribal allotments. Certainly the, the giving of the tribal allotment had something to do with the size of the tribe the larger tribes getting the larger land. You see that clearly in Judah and in Ephraim and Manasseh especially. And then the smaller tribes, particularly Benjamin giving, being given a very small piece of land. So that was obviously a factor that was involved in the selection of the land. Now there's no moral question involved here in the casting of these lots, no moral question at all. It's simply a matter of giving land to tribes in a way that is considered equitable by all the tribes the representatives of each tribe had already agreed to the sevenfold division. They had said, yes, these are reasonable divisions. In fact, the implication would be that the representatives would have been happy with any one of the seven had that been given to their tribe. This, this was the idea here. And the casting of lots was to divide the land so that no one could be accused of having favoritism or bias in any way at the same time believing that God was in the division of the land. And that God was in the division, I think, could be seen by going back to the end of the book of Genesis and discovering something about Jacob's prophecy concerning his sons. And as you look at that, you would, I think, discover that certain things there seem to imply a God's direction relative to even the division of the land that would come far later in time uh, beyond what Jacob could have possibly known himself. As you read on through the 18th chapter of the book of Joshua and the up to verse 48 of the 19th chapter, you have the description of the land as it is divided amongst these seven tribal groups. First, the division to Benjamin is described. And I'm not going to read all of these because it's just a list of names that for the most part mean nothing to us today. In fact, most of the, of the sites listed cannot even be located for certain today. Certain of them can. Like, for example, when you're talking about Benjamin, Gibeon, and Gibeah are both very clearly identifiable. What's fascinating about Gibeah is that uh, Gibeah is a hill just north of Jerusalem, and it's been identified as the Gibeah here because it was the capital of Saul's kingdom. But on the top of the hill at Gibeah, King Hussein, who recently died, built a palace to himself when that part, that is, it was never completed because Israel took over uh, that part of the land in 1967 in the war there so that um, he wasn't able to complete his palace. But he, he began the construction of a palace, King Hussein of Jordan, uh, on top of the hill of Gibeah, which had been the capital of Israel's first king, <clears throat> Saul. The, the, the piece of land given to, be, to Benjamin, you see it here on the map. Now, these are estimated boundaries. You go from atlas to atlas, and you will find that the boundaries are, are different a little uh, from one to the other. Using the description that's given in the scripture and identifying the towns that we can identify, and of course the physical features are, are easy to identify, the river, the lake, the Dead Sea, and so forth. We, we have a division that looks like this. I've looked at other atlases that have a division that looks somewhat different. I mean, they're roughly in the same place, but the borders are drawn a little differently. This comes largely from one of the great geographical scholars of that part of the world, Bailey. 
and also from the Moody Atlas, and I trust Moody more than some others, especially those that are put out by liberal institutions who don't believe in the Bible anyway, that give us, I think, a fairly reasonable estimate uh, given what we do know about the actual towns and, and uh, physical locations here. What, what you see about Benjamin is that it's a kind of a long, narrow one, sandwiched in between the two great tribes of Judah and Ephraim. Now, what is very interesting about this is that in the passage of Benjamin, it tells you that they were given the Jebusite, that is Jerusalem. And yet, at the end of the passage on Judah, it said that the people of Judah had not been able to subdue the Jebusites at Jerusalem. That doesn't mean the scripture is in error at all. It simply means that Jerusalem is right smack on the border between Benjamin and Judah. And Benjamin, being a small tribe, did not have the responsibility of overwhelming Jerusalem, but Judah did. And of course, Jerusalem would eventually become inter an integral part of Judea and was that in the days of Jesus' life. Simeon was the next tribe to receive a portion of its inheritance. And we've already talked about Simeon a little bit before. They were given 17 towns and villages down in the southern part of the territory that originally had been allotted. Which gives a list of something like 26 villages and yet says there are 33 or 35. I forgot the exact numbers. We could, we could go back and, and look at it here. It says there are 29 this is verse 32 of chapter 15. It says there are 29 villages in all, but if you count those villages, you'll find that there are 38 listed. That's, again, not an error in Scripture. Because we're told later on that those nine that are in that list, but which weren't counted as part of Judah, were those given to Simeon, in addition to other villages that were given to Simeon. Simeon down here received Beersheba, which, of course, was a very important center for the historical tradition because that's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at one time dwelled. And a great well was, was uh, dug there. And today you can visit Beersheba and see the well that is believed to be the actual well that was dug uh, in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Verse 19 of chapter 9 tells us this specifically relative to the inheritance of Simeon that inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah, for the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them. So the sons of Simeon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance. And of course, they were given it way down the south. They're in the Negev. They're actually uh, carrying over into the wilderness of Zin. And the wilderness of Zin, well, it's not like the Sahara Desert, but it is a pretty wild place. If you stand up near the tomb of Ben-Gurion, which is down on, on the edge of the Negev, and you look down into the wilderness of Zin, why, it looks like something from a western. Dry and dry barren hills and a little creek wandering way down, down through the, the wilderness. It was an area that was habitable for uh, sheep raising people, but not really for, for farmers. Then we're told that Zebulon was given a, a small territory north of Manasseh. And you find, you find Zebulon up here, directly north of Manasseh, sandwiched in between Asher and Issachar, was the small area that was given to Zebulon. Issachar was given a territory also immediately north of Manasseh. 
And also, they were given a small portion, as you see there, of the Jordan Valley. Now, the Jordan Valley, because of the existence of the Jordan River, is farmable in many of its places. And for, you know, river valleys are almost always more fertile than other areas because of the floodplain in which sediment has dumped, been dumped over the century, provides very arable and fertile land, and then the water being nearby for irrigation. Uh, this would be important. But what is further interesting here is that those three tribes, Manasseh, Zebulon, and Issachar, amongst them divided the Jezreel Valley. Now in all of Israel, the finest piece of farmland is found in the Jezreel Valley, the plain of Esdraelon, as it sometimes is called, or the plain of Armageddon, as it is sometimes called, because the key city on the Via Maris, which is the route that comes up the coast and cuts across towards the Sea of Galilee, the key city there, historically which guarded, is the city of Megiddo. Megiddo, from which we get the term Armageddon, the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon. And so that, that plain, it's, it's a beautiful flat valley, fertile as, as, as any valley in the world virtually, with two streams throwing through it, the Kishon which flows one way and, and a creek which flows the other way towards the Jordan, draining it in two different directions. And I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but if you stand on, as, as we did, we stood on the Nazareth Ridge and you look down there and right smack in the middle of the Jezreel Valley is an air base. <laughs> And I, I get, it probably doesn't bother the weed any uh, for jets to be taking off and so forth, but I'm sure it would freak out the animals. Of course, they might grow accustomed to it, I suppose, after a while. The fifth lot fell to Asher. Now, Asher received the coastal strip from Mount Carmel north to the Latani River. This was the land granted to Asher. Asher was to be oriented towards the sea. Directly east of Asher, was the tribe of Naphtali. And they were given a fairly large portion in what would later be known as Galilee. As you look at that there, you will notice that Naphtali had the entire west coast of the Sea of Galilee, and they had the entire right bank, or west bank, if you like, of the Jordan River north of the Sea of Galilee. That other little lake up there that you see north of the Sea of Galilee is Lake Hula. It doesn't exist today, really. Oh, there's kind of a pond up there. But it's mostly been drained. It's kind of a marshland. It's, part of it's been converted into agricultural land. And, and then as you trace it north, uh, the branches of the, of the Jordan River come out of Mount Hermon. In fact, uh, at Caesarea Philippi, it comes directly out of the rock. I mean, you just walk right up to the mountain. Clunk, and the water's coming out the base of the mountain to form one of the branches of, of the Jordan River at Caesarea Philippi. It's a, it's a beautiful little area. So this is what's given to the, to the tribe of Naphtali. Naphtali and Zebulon would one day be blessed as the land of the birth and youth and ministry of Messiah. And there's a special passage that I've listed there in uh, Matthew chapter 4 that makes reference to this directly. Fourth chapter of Matthew at verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali, 
This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. And to those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he began to walk along the shores of the Sea of Galilee in the tribal area of Naphtali and to call his 12 apostles, 12 disciples. So the land was blessed. Capernaum is right near the top of the uh, Sea of Galilee on the west side in the Naphtali area. And Nazareth is in Zebulon. So Nazareth, Capernaum, these are in the land where Jesus would be born, uh, not born, but where he would grow up and where he would minister. Dan automatically received what was left. Well, you know, if all the lots have been drawn and you're the only tribe left, you know what's yours, right? You, you get what's left. Well, in this case, it shouldn't have mattered because theoretically, they were seven equal parts, somehow equal. Somehow, however, related to the tribe size too. Dan was a small tribe. And so they received a small piece of territory. And you see it here directly to the west of Benjamin. They got por a portion of the plain of the Philistines, which meant they had to deal with the Philistines just as Judah had to deal with the Philistines. And this gives you a wonderful background for understanding the life of Samson, because Samson was from the tribe of Dan. And Samson had to deal with the Philistines. And part of his dealing with the Philistines took him down into Judah's tribal territory. People of Judah didn't mind if he beat up on a few Philistines, of course. But he was the judge, of course, of the whole land. Now, what is confusing about Dan is that Dan doesn't stay here in this particular place. Later on, you discover in the subsequent historical passages of Scripture, and you know, if we, had, uh, if we get there someday, Lord willing, if we continue this, uh, we'll see that <clears throat> the, the tribe of Dan was nearly wiped out at one time by their a civil war happened. And so the tribe of Dan migrated way up to the north and, and they moved way up into what was actually the tribal territory of Naphtali and Manasseh. And they reestablished themselves up there. And that's why today, if you go north of the Sea of Galilee, you will go to a place called Dan. And, and this is the Dan that was reconstructed or was constructed later when the tribe made the move to the north. And Dan, by the way, is a it's, it's in a beautiful location. It's, it's again where, where the Jordan River is, is, is in its uh, early stages. It's kind of a park. It actually is a park up there. It's one of the most beautiful places in all of the nation of Israel, the, the, right around the site of the, uh, of the city of Dan. Of course, Dan is just being excavated. There is no city there today. So what you discover about Dan and Benjamin is both of them are sandwiched between the two big tribes of Judah and Ephraim. Let me read from the 19th chapter of Joshua at verse 49. When they finished apportioning the land for inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. In accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnah Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. So he built the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun 
and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel, distributed by lot in Shiloh, before the Lord, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. This morning it was interesting, I was reading uh, in Josephus, and uh, he, whenever he refers to the heads of the households of the tribes of Israel, he calls them the Senate. The Senate. The Senate? The Senate, of course, is not a Jewish term. It's a Latin term, but that's because Josephus lived in the first century. And Josephus was carried off to Italy as a friend of the Emperor Vespasian. And of course, the Roman Senate, a very powerful agency. So he used that terminology when referring to the collection of the elders of the household of, of Israel. This passage of scripture is, is a really, really important passage because it illustrates the character of this man, Joshua, and what it means to be a true leader. What it means to be a true leader. We have a false image in our society of what leadership means, particularly political leadership. You know, you, you've heard it mentioned so often, uh, the famous phrase by Lord Acton, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that is absolutely true, you know. <laughs> Except in the case where God's people are following God's directive. Most conquerors throughout history have felt that because they have led the conquest and they have led the, man, uh, the, the army and, and they have brilliantly planned the campaign that they deserve the best. When it comes to the plunder, they should have the best. I mean, look at pirates, for example. The captain of the pirate ship always got the biggest piece of the plunder and what was left of it was divided amongst the crew according to their position in the crew. And that wasn't just true amongst pirates. It was true amongst privateers, just about anybody. And uh, conquerors down through history, you know, whoever they might be, Genghis Khan, whatever. Uh, these conquerors always wanted the best for themselves. First choice, biggest, best. But what is interesting about Joshua, he doesn't stake his claim until everybody else has already made their claim. Everybody else. Every tribe, every clan, every family has already received its inheritance before Joshua requests his. And even then, he doesn't demand. He asks. And the scripture in verse 49 says, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance to Joshua. The implication is it was a willing gift. The next verse tells us that in accordance to the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, not demanded. He simply asked. And they were willing to give it to him. There's no specific command mentioned in Scripture from the Lord relative to Joshua and his piece of property. So what we have to assume is either, first of all, you remember we went back to the passage in Numbers and Deuteronomy where Caleb, we're told that Caleb would be given the land that he had spied out. Now it could be that at the same time the God, that God gave a command relative to Joshua that didn't, wasn't recorded in Scripture. I don't know. But more likely, the command came through Eliezer. Eliezer was there with Joshua in the distribution of the land, and it could very well be that God said to Eliezer, now give Joshua his peace. That seems to me the most logical uh, thing that happened here. Whatever is the case, Joshua displays the antithesis of greed. 
by asking for an insignificant town on an insignificant hill in that portion of territory that had already been allotted to his tribe of Ephraim. Timnasera was and is located in a part of Canaan that is hilly and only very modestly fertile. I think Joshua could have said, well now folks, I have led you so successfully in this campaign and I've held you together and I've heard the word of the Lord and given it to you. I think I deserve the middle of the Jezreel Valley. And the people would have said, but of course, <laughs> but of course. But you know, later on they would have thought that guy was exploiting his position. And subsequent children of children of children and subsequent generations would say, Joshua used his power to rip off our family and to take his property right from the midst of ours. And of course, if he had claimed the Jez somewhere in the Jezreel Valley, he would have been claiming land from Zebulon or Issachar or Manasseh, not from his own tribe of Ephraim. But I think we have here a magnificent display of true humility, of God-given humility. The, you've heard this before, but one of the professors at the college, Dr. Hugh Humphreys, who was there for 30, over 30 years, he's now dead, but he often emphasized that he felt the, great, the most godly characteristic of a Christian is humility, because that is really hard to come by, really hard to come by. He wanted a piece of land which would occasion no jealousy and no accusation that he'd used his position to enrich himself. What a powerful example to us and to Israel. I mean, study history sometime and, and look at what the conquerors did. Uh, throughout the pages of history, somebody who rose to the pinnacle of political power, social power, religious power, almost always study the history of the popes, for example. Here they are, supposed to be vicars of Christ, uh, humble men of God. And how many times did they use their power to enrich their family, to to uh, increase the wealth of their family, the power of their family. One of the greatest Italian families of the Middle Ages was the Medici family. And the Medici family was a great banking family. And, and they, uh, they, they used that wealth to put their members on the papal throne because this gave them certain benefits back. This is normal human characteristic. You find to be a very rare person who is not a true believer in Jesus Christ or a follower of the living God, whoever has had a position of power and who didn't use it for his own advancement or the advancement of his family or of his friends. You look at the lives of the conquistadores who came to the New World, the men who came over on the ships from Spain and from Portugal, and as they conquered, they came over under the banner of God, gold, and glory. But God got the short end of the stick on that. In fact, they were usually very impatient with the padres that came along with them. Uh, they, they were annoyed by them, usually. And what happened was the conquistadores were out seeing who could get the most gold and who could get the most power, and they killed each other off. For what? For gold or for power. Why was Columbus sent back in chains after the end of his third voyage? Because others hankered for the power that he had. Why did Cortez get busted and sent home? because he had too much power and too much wealth. Why did the Pizarro brothers get killed by others? Because they had too much power and too much wealth. That's the natural human tendency. Well, what a different attitude we see in the part of Joshua and on the part of Moses. 
They didn't aspire to leadership in the first place. Moses ran the other way when God said, I wanted to use you as a leader. And Joshua wasn't exactly standing there waiting for Moses to die so he could take over. And yet, they heard the call and they walked in obedience and they served for the good of their people. What leader have you ever heard of in history who stood before God and said, slay me, but save the people? You hear that from Moses, you hear it from Paul, but do you hear it from kings and queens and other leaders of the world? I don't think so. They were Christ-like. And I, I wanted to go to the passage in uh, Philippians. Uh, I think I'll do that next time we meet because it, it of course, describes Christ, but how Christ-like Joshua really was in his actions here.